This sermon is a presentation of Grace Bible Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. At Grace Bible Church, we exist to help all people know Christ as Savior and Lord, to grow together as believers in Christ and our love for Him and for others, and to reach all people with His gospel. First Peter, chapter two, we in verses eighteen to twenty-five. As you're turning there, um, I want to encourage you to think about a time when you were disciplined for something that you just did not do. Okay, whether it was something was broken in your house. And a sibling did it, but they wouldn't fess up. Um, and so you got the blame for some reason or another. Um, I know for, for myself, the one that I think of was when a time when I was in high school. And my class was in the library. And there was a few guys at my table goofing off. Um, and because of the fact, and I, I, I believe this is how it goes because I remember my response to it. Um, I often, I, I was... I was a decent student, but I, I just was a little rambunctious. Um, and so there were times where I got in trouble, and I just took it. You know, I knew that I did this. It's not a big deal. I, I messed up in this way. But I remember this time in particular, I was adamant. I don't know why I was on a kick uh, for productivity or something. I was adamant. I was getting my work done, um, and I was not taking part in just the shenanigans that were happening over here. Well, the librarian saw us and said, that whole table over there, they all were just goofing off the whole period. And so all of us got in-school suspension, ISS, is what we called it, where you like sat in a room with one of the football coaches um, who you did not mess around with, and you were silent, and you just did your work. Um, I remember that time, I remember how frustrating it was that, as far as I remember, so I'm not saying somebody else may hear this, um, who I went to high school with and be like, that guy, I remember that. Um, but as far as I remember, I was not doing anything that I shouldn't have been doing. But I still had to suffer through the consequences of it. So for us, it's very difficult to suffer. But it's even more difficult to suffer unjustly. When you go through something that you just do not deserve, you get disciplined for an action you didn't take, for breaking a crime or doing a crime where you broke a law that you didn't actually break. And Peter has words for Christians who suffer for something they did not do, who suffer, as he says, unjustly. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our main idea this morning is this. We can suffer unjustly with the hope of leading others to Christ because Christ suffered unjustly to bring us to himself. I'm going to say it twice, but it's there on the screen. So I'll let you write it down from there. Now let's uh, take a few moments. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. And we thank you, even though um, there are some ways where this is a hard one, Lord, where you are telling us not just that we will um, suffer, maybe have to endure suffering, uh, but that we may have to endure unjust suffering. That we may have to submit in times when we'd rather not submit at times when there are people who maybe aren't worthy by their actions of being submitted to. But Lord, we ask, we ask that by your Spirit, you would humble us. You would remind us of the sinful state that we've come from. You would remind us of our Savior who deserved nothing but to be glorified, but instead was beaten and reviled and ultimately killed. So help us understand these words with our minds and with our hearts. Give me the ability to speak your word rightly, Lord. And give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. So for us, we can suffer unjustly, is our first point. You can suffer, and not to say that we can suffer unjustly, but you, Christian, can suffer unjustly. He starts off saying this. Servants, be subject to your masters. Not to the good only, but also to the unjust. Now, when we talk about servants in the Bible, um, they can be translated one of two ways. Either as servants, is how a lot of translation, translations do it today, um, but really the thrust of it is that of a slave. For certain reasons, um, especially with the history of our country, translators have felt like it is probably good to distance ourselves from that term, which we see some wisdom in, but at the same time, we kind of lose the thrust of what is happening here, the idea of being a slave. And some people look at this and say, well, if it is a slave, the Bible writers had this platform. Why did they not just condemn the slavery that the people were in? Why was their response not, well, you know what, you're enslaved, but God did not intend that. So, you know what, you should just do everything you can to get out of that situation. But we don't see that happening in the New Testament. And the question, a lot of times, is why? The first thing is this, that the Bible has, over time, come to have great influence, especially over the Western world. At the time that it was written, there was a handful of people in the Mediterranean area who were being influenced by this. And though God intends this for over the course of history in the past 2,000 years to become a huge platform, at the time of writing, the writers were writing just to a single church 
We think about the book of Ephesians is written to a single church in Ephesus. The book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is a single church in Corinth. 1 Peter is written to a single region. They didn't necessarily have the platform that we may think that they had. And on top of that, what they were really concerned with is the response of those who were in Christ. To say, listen, if you are in slavery, this is how you respond. Now, something else we have to understand is this. That slavery back then was different. Not way different, but different. Some differences for slavery in American history versus slavery at the time of the New Testament was that slaves could be educated. Slaves could have a huge skill set, great skill set, to be doctors, to be teachers. Whereas American slavery, that didn't necessarily afford that. Education was something that you did not want a slave to have in the minds of the slaveholder. Slaves received wages in the New Testament. They could actually receive payment for what they were doing. Not so in American history. And then, with enough wages built up, slaves could ultimately buy themselves out of slavery. It wasn't a guarantee for every person who was enslaved in the New Testament, but it was possible. So there were ways where slavery was different, we'll say. But slaves were, at the end of the day, still slaves to their master. While in that role of slave, they had to do what their master said. And Peter's response to that is this. He says in the SV, be subject to your masters. Another way we'd say it is to submit. And not just to the good masters, but the ones who are bad. So we look at this and we say, okay, well, he's saying be subject to your masters in all respects. Not to the good only, but to the bad also. Those who are unjust. Then the question becomes, so what of us? None of us are slaves. None of us hold slaves. So then, does this passage matter to us? For us, an employ- a place of being an employee is the closest thing that we have. As an employee today, you still have to submit to the person who is over you, to your boss. They give you wages, but the wages come with an agreement, maybe an unspoken agreement, that you're going to follow what they say. And do what they have told you to do. And if you don't, you're going to lose your job. This is actually pretty close in some ways. Like I say, in some ways. Because you can still leave that job eventually if you want to. Because for them, free men in the New Testament time essentially worked as contracted labor. And could just kind of pick up and go. And they say, you know what, we have this agreement between us for a certain period of time. But you know what? I'm out of here. Some of us are employees. Some of us, our financial situation makes it that we can't just pick up and leave a job. So for us, we have bad bosses. So the question is, how then do we interact with those bad bosses? Maybe you're a student and you have an incredibly unfair teacher, an incredibly unfair professor. Maybe you are uh, in college and you have a professor even who... uh, has very strong feelings against the Christian 
faith. Maybe singles you out for it. What do we do? With not just good bosses, but bad bosses. Not just good teachers or professors, but bad teachers and professors. So we see that this maybe has more to do with us than we think. That we're not slaves, that we don't hold slaves. Maybe it has more to do than we had originally thought. For us in our jobs, you may suffer wrong, or you may suffer for doing wrong in your jobs. You mess up, you do something the way you're not supposed to, you get penalized for it. And you should. But maybe you suffer for doing right, or for choosing not to do wrong. Choosing not to engage maybe in fraudulent behavior. If you're in a job that deals with money because that's the culture of the business you were in. Maybe you're out of a job. What then should we do? Peter talks about submitting. Understanding that you should be submitting to your masters with all respect. Now we could get into a big, long debate about what exactly does it mean. We would say that at a certain point, when you were suffering just abuse after abuse after abuse, you're physically in danger, you're being not receiving the funds that you should and the payment you should, and your family is suffering, that wisdom would say to get out of that situation. But for a lot of us, we have this thing called pride. And for some of us, the first moment something bad comes up in a job, something bad comes up, in any kind of situation we're under an authority, the pride within us wants to fight back, wants to say that's wrong, and then leave. Wants to cut ties to that situation as quickly as possible. But Peter says, submit. Be subject to those who are above you in authority. Now, as he says this, and as we aim to do this, to be able to submit, to be willing to submit to God, we're not doing it or to submit to our masters and so doing, submit to God. We're not doing it because we've given ourselves over to fate. We've said, this is just my lot in life, and so what else am I going to do? Because that's called stoicism. This is an ancient philosophy that still some people hold to today, where essentially the idea is that there is fate, and fate means that what's going to happen to you is, what, is what's going to happen. It can be bad, but your time on this earth is so short because it doesn't have a view of eternity. That you just need to grin and bear it. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about a stoic response, a stoic kind of submitting where you're just giving yourself over to fate. He says it's a gracious thing to suffer when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we don't do this, we don't just give ourselves over to this. We are mindful of God as we endure this suffering, as we endure these sorrows. We are remembering him, and you're going to see that here in just a moment as we talk about Christ who suffered unjustly. That as we think about him, we're being mindful of him. But Peter's gone and says that this is a gracious thing to suffer. 
This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Literally, he is saying this is grace. In the Greek, that is what is there. This is grace. It's the grace of God to go through suffering. But why? How can we possibly say that this is God's grace? Well, we can say it because Christ suffered unjustly. This is our second point. Christ suffered unjustly. Peter says this, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. You have been called to the suffering. And because the reason you've been called to the suffering is because Christ was suffering for you. And we're going to fill that out here in a moment. Why him suffering for us leads to us suffering ourselves and enduring suffering and enduring bad authorities and terrible bosses and whatever. We have to understand this about Christ. He suffered in his perfection. This is something that none of us can say. We look at Christ and we see one who is perfect, fully God and fully man. And Peter says, deceit wasn't, or he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, which means to be uh, criticized in an abusive way, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, and when he suffered, he didn't threaten them. Imagine what it would be like to have all the power in the world to deal with people who treat you poorly. To be able, as Christ would have been right then and there, as God, to just think it. And those guards who are nailing him to a tree, as Roman soldiers, would have not existed anymore. Not just to kill them, but to blink them out of existence. That is the power that he had. But when he suffered, he didn't do that. He didn't put them to death with the thought. He actually didn't even threaten. He was sinless. And he was perfect. And he didn't respond poorly to being sinned against in this way. This fact should give us pause whenever we're about to lose it because of the injustice that we face. And for some of us, maybe injustice isn't the right word to call it, just inconvenience that we face. Because we got a bad shift that we didn't want and we really wish we wouldn't have to have. We're about to lose it. Because someone else has given the promotion. Because someone else has given this recognition and this honor. And we're about to lose it because we face this injustice. Which, like I said, is sometimes not even injustice, but just inconvenience. It's not what we expected or wanted. We have to understand that if Christ can face injustice in such a way, then so should we. Because he was perfect. He deserved none of that. But for us as sinners, we don't deserve the breath that's in our lungs right now. We don't deserve to be able to even have jobs, to get an education. What we deserve is hell for our rebellion against the God of the universe. So Christ suffered this injustice when he committed no sin, when he didn't threaten or revile and return all of this. It says, but instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Christ was entrusting himself to the Father. This is his response to injustice. To entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Essentially, what Peter is saying is this. Christ, maybe to put it in words, is saying, I trust your will and I trust your plan in all of this. And if we were to go back to the Gospels and see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, hours before, even minutes before, because that is where he was whenever Judas shows up with this mob to take Jesus and to put him through this kangaroo court, even minutes before. He's pleading with the Father, saying, let this cup pass from me. There's such a way of saying, let this suffering, this cup of suffering pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In the last moments before, all of this started happening, and the suffering started happening. He was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, which is the only place that we can go, because so often we will be judged unjustly. We will face injustice. There's only one who judges justly, and that's the Father. So for you, church, are you entrusting yourself to the Father? Are you actively trusting in God and his plan for you? This looks like whenever you face an injustice, whenever you face being fired for an unjust reason, when you face not being promoted, when you face something that may happen in the not-too-distant future, maybe in the distant future, we hope. The fact that maybe you lose some privilege that we have for being a Christian, some privilege we have for holding to a biblical Christianity, looks like us saying, God, this stinks. It's awful. I hate it, but I trust you. I trust your plan. I know that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you have my best in mind. We must be entrusting ourselves to the Father as Christ did because we will never face a grief like that, like being cut off like Christ was, like having all the sin of the entire world on him. We will never face that. But he entrusted himself to the Father and we must be doing the same. And he did it, third point, though, to save us from our sins. So the reason then is revealed that Christ suffered. And his audience knows this. And those of us who are in Christ know this. But he doesn't start off with the reason. He starts off with the facts of what happened. Christ suffered. But why did he suffer? He didn't just suffer because he played his hand wrong. He suffered because he was fulfilling the Father's plan. And the Father's plan was to save us from our sin. And we see the fact that this is a plan because what he quotes, and if you probably remember from the beginning of the service, is Isaiah 53, what's often called the Song of the Suffering Servant. And so Peter, in referencing Isaiah 53, tells us why Christ suffered. Because he was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. This is verse 24. Bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Called a tree because in Jewish law, they did any person who was hanged on a tree, who died on a tree, 
was cursed. So he is taking our sins, and in taking our sins, he is enduring the curse of God. So he's bearing our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, so that sin would no longer have any power over us, and said, live to righteousness. That is the purpose of Christ's death. It's that we are dead to sin, so sin has no more power over us, no more claim on us. And instead, that our living has to do with righteousness. So we can able be able to live righteously. By his wounds, we've been healed, he says. Essentially, we've been healed of our sin sickness. And on top of that, we have the hope that one day we will have perfect bodies in glory. We will no longer suffer physically. So by his wounds, then, we have been healed of sin, and we have the hope of full healing. And finally, he says, for you were straying like sheep. We were straying from our maker. He says, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The one who made us, who has the claim over us. The one whom we should be absolutely obedient to. We were straying from him, as all humanity does. But through his death, he is returning us to that right relationship. Bringing us back from straying. This shows us that Christ's suffering wasn't pointless. It wasn't useless. It wasn't a mistake. And it wasn't Christ playing his hand wrong, but it had great purpose that was intended from before the foundation of the world. He was suffering, and in his suffering he was mindful of the Father's plan, a plan that he had a part in. He wasn't just subjecting himself to it because he, in the sense of where he didn't want to do it. Now, this is God's plan as one single triune God before the foundation of the world, that Christ would come to fulfill the plan and to save us so that one day we would glorify God. That is the purpose. He suffered for the purpose of saving us from our sins and in saving us from our sins to lead us to glorifying God one day. On the day now, we, we glorify him now, but we'll do even more on what he said in verses 12 on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment, when we stand before God. So now our final point, we aim to lead others to this salvation that is spoken of here through our suffering. In light of what all we've seen, in light of the fact that Christ suffered with a purpose of leading us back to our Maker, we aim to lead others to the salvation, to this return, this redemption, this fixing of the broken relationship with our Maker. We, lead, we aim to lead others to this salvation even through our suffering. Our goal is to preach this salvation, to make it explicit with our words, to make it real and understandable with our actions as we love people. We want to even do it through our suffering. Our hope at the end of the day is this, that as others watch us as we suffer. They say, wow, that is amazing. They are being treated so unfairly. And they can be speaking about that when it comes to being treated unfairly at work or by your landlord or by your boss or by the government as we saw last week or by your husband 
her wife, as we're going to see in the next verses. And they say, how could they possibly endure that? We've seen the reality of this as family members of the people in Charleston, the church in Charleston that, I can't, I'm not even sure of the date now, but it was maybe a couple years ago, were able to say, this man shot our family members, but we forgive him because God has forgiven us. We see it in the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, who in their suffering are this morning, probably even right now, going to, I believe, a local stadium, local baseball field, to have a service, to glorify God, to grieve together, but not as those who have no hope, but to grieve as those who do have hope. And the world looks on and says, how can these people endure such a thing and still praise the God who is supposedly sovereign over it all? This is not normal for humans to respond this way, but it's right. It's good. And it is a result of God's grace in our lives. And that's why God, that's why Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this is a gracious thing when you go through this. Because it is showing, look at the grace in the life of this person. Our hope is that they see it and they ask us and say, how can you live this way? And we get to share that we know that whatever we go through, whatever it is, that it doesn't hold a candle to what we deserve which is hell, eternal separation from God. And it doesn't hold a candle to what we will one day receive after the judgment when the Father looks on us and sees not our sin because it was bore on the tree, on Christ's body, on the tree. But instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. He says, my son, my daughter, adopted into my family. When we were orphans before. When we were illegitimate children before. The world looks on and sees us suffering. Church, respond to suffering well. This doesn't mean not grieving. It means grieving in a way that's different. It doesn't mean your life ending after sorrows. After injustice. You may bear the scars of that onto eternity all the way until then. But, understand, we have to respond differently to endure it and to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So Christian, how do you respond to your suffering? How do you respond to the trials? Do you fight for your rights at the drop of a hat because you've been done wrong? It's one thing to seek justice, and it's another thing completely to pridefully say every time that you're inconvenienced, I don't deserve this. Two significantly different things. You don't want what you deserve, because what you deserve is hell, plain and simple. But Christian, entrust yourself to the Father who judges justly. 
and entrust yourself to him who judges, not on your actions, but on Christ's. And as just as he is because of Christ's actions now, we are reconciled to him. And that makes everything else fall away. All the bad and light of eternity should make us say, wow, I can endure this. I can endure this bankruptcy. I can endure the loss of this job. I can endure this death in the family so unexpected. I can endure this cancer because I trust the Father who is good. And as unfair as this is, I know that he judges justly. Christian, continue to entrust yourself to him. You've entrusted yourself to him for salvation. If you can trust our God with your eternal life, you can entrust him with this temporal life. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, the question is this, will you entrust yourself to God the first time? Will you entrust yourself to God with your eternal life? Our souls go on forever, whether we're in Christ or not. The question is where? that you can entrust yourself to one who judges justly by believing in Christ's death for you. Believing and trusting that he took his sin, that he took your sins. So entrust yourself to God. The believer, continue entrusting yourself to God. To the unbeliever for the first time, entrust yourself to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about this passage, this is hard. Lord, it's not easy. And maybe it's easy here in the moment. And we can kind of get pepped up from this and say, well, yeah, of course we trust God. Lord, we know that as the trials actually come, this gets difficult. Lord, we know that we can only be entrusting ourselves to you constantly by your Spirit's work in us. Holy Spirit, empower us to do this. Empower us to understand that as Christians we can grieve. We don't grieve the same way as the world. Help us to grieve rightly. Help us to endure sorrows rightly. Help us not be stoics about it. To just be indifferent to this world and the struggles of this world. Instead, help us, Lord, to be entrusting ourselves to you. Entrusting ourselves to your plan. So that, as verse 11 says in this chapter, that those who are against us, who are against us because they're against you, will see our good deeds, the beautiful actions that we take, as we saw last week, the attractive life that we live, and they will glorify you on the day of visitation. They will glorify you. And that the means that you use to bring them to that spot would be our actions. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Thank you for all that you've done for your goodness. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. If you would like more information about Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.grace.com.
lostcrucis.org.